Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care. Welcome to the smartest doctor in the room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. The question I want to answer today in the podcast, is gluten really the number one food enemy? And today's guest is considered by many the country's top expert on gluten-related diseases. He is a full professor and director of the Celiac Disease Center at Columbia University. And it's my honor and pleasure to welcome to the podcast, Dr. Peter Green. Thank you. Good day. Oh, it's a pleasure having you, Dr. Green. I want to just start off with something, you know, kind of amusing. I was fortunate enough to hear you speak at the New York Allergy Society about seven years ago. And again, most recently, this past January. And of course, the lecture was terrific. But what I would notice was two things had not changed in those seven years. One, your really cool Australian accent. <laughs> which I wish I could duplicate, and gluten and Thank wheat. <laughs> it's not and, hard, actually. <laughs> and gluten and wheat as being the evil for our health. And I know we're going to discuss this at your lectures when you really pointed out, you know, some of the misconceptions and, you know, things that, you know, that gets out there in the lay media, which really confuses people. So the first thing I'm going to ask you, how you would define being gluten-free? What, what foods should patients truly avoid who need to avoid gluten? Right. So gluten's the main, is the term for the, the main storage protein in the cereal grains, wheat, rye, and barley. Mm-hmm. So people have to avoid products that contain wheat, rye, and barley in their derivatives. But one of the problems is that this gluten is found in many different food products currently, wheat flour is added, and in some places that are surprising, like beer. I was just about to say that, again, I know you're Australian, and uh, you know I, I was a big tennis fan, so I know the Australians were not only great tennis players, but they liked their beer. So yeah, I'm glad you're pointing that out, because people tend to think of being gluten-free as just avoiding bread, but yeah. there are other but, subtle uh, things. Yeah, it may be a filler in a medication or... It may be in lipstick, you know. Well, that's another really good all, point. Because, all around the yeah. place. Can I ask you this? I think this is really important for the listeners that, you know, my background's in allergy, and we know that when somebody, for example, has a peanut allergy, minute amounts of that peanut, the protein in the peanut, could trigger a severe reaction. Isn't it different a little bit for celiac or, I mean, for gluten, that is it, is it amount, does the amount matter versus, you know, just even having small amounts? Is it sort of cumulative, I guess, would be the rest sure. of the way? It, it is really cumulative, actually. Most people who have celiac disease, we'll talk about that mainly because that's, or initially, because that's much better defined than, say, non-celiac gluten sensitivity. So most people with celiac disease actually tolerate a small amount of gluten and the standard of being gluten-free is less than 20 parts per million. So a gluten-free product actually can contain a small amount of gluten as long as it's below a certain concentration. Right. And if you ate, say, which is 20 parts per million, so say you're eating bread that was uh, 18 parts per million gluten, 
and you had a few loaves of bread a day, you'd get a lot of gluten, actually. So there is this cutoff. Now, we don't know how sensitive each individual is, actually, and there may be people who are sensitive to much smaller amounts or tolerate that reasonably well. Well, okay, let's go back there because I want, again, the listeners to really understand because you're such an expert that we have to also just keep in mind that, again, what the listeners are thinking. So 20 parts per million. I remember seeing that, I think, in your book that, so that wouldn't even appear on an ingredient list, right? Because it's low enough that it, it shouldn't affect a person who's gluten sensitive or has celiac. Well, yeah, that's what we think. Okay. Um, or most of the studies have shown, uh, and the standard in this country as in most parts of the world is if the amount of gluten in a product is less than 20 parts per million, it can be labeled as being gluten-free. Okay. All right. Now I wanted to get into what you were starting to say, which I think is so important and you've done so beautifully in the lectures that I've attended. And I think it's important for the, the listeners and the public to understand that these essentially these three different categories, I like to group things, you know, with wheat and gluten. And we know that there's wheat allergy. And yes, so there's you... wheat allergy. And as a gastroenterologist, we don't see much wheat allergy. It's you guys, you allergists, would, who would you know, have contact with patients who have a wheat allergy that develops, say, hives, anaphylaxis, asthma, when they contact wheat. Well, let me actually, let me tell you this. You know, funny, we don't see that much of it either. Believe it or not, again, for the listeners to know that it's actually more common in children in the adult population, it's really approximately 0.3%, very low amount. I'll tell you a quick funny story. You might be able to appreciate this, Dr. Green. I had a patient that I was seeing in my practice in my early years, and she came to me. She was so upset. She goes, I can't eat pasta anymore. I can't eat, obviously, pizza. And, you know, she wanted to know if I could do anything about it. And it turns out, you know, she was Italian background. And, of course, you know, that was just part of her family history. But as you can appreciate... It was funny. She told me my family were bakers. She goes, and we lived above the bakery. So all right. of the years, she was such a legitimate case of what we call baker's asthma. She was inhaling right. the wheat proteins for years and was eating, you know, the pizza and the pasta and loving it. And then one day in her 30s, you know, she took a, you know, she was eating some pasta and then she started wheezing and couldn't breathe. But she was one of the rarer patients that I ever saw in my practice. So... Yes. So yeah, the wheat allergy people, I guess you would refer to, you know, to an allergist, not really in your things. But, so let's move on to the... But actually yeah. they have to be on a gluten-free diet because that's the, right. really the only way to avoid wheat. Yes, I know. Well, we'll talk about that. We're working on sublingual desensitizations for that. So we'll come to some of the things that later on about how can we help these people. So, all right, let's go into celiac disease, which again, you are so well known for. I saw I have a New England Journal paper that you authored in that very prestigious right. journal. I have your book. Is celiac yes, as common as people think? They, in their mind, they think it is. But what is the true prevalence? Yeah, so celiac disease occurs in about 1% of the population in most countries, actually. In the United States, it's 0.7%. It occurs predominantly in white people, Northern European, Caucasians, and less commonly in black people and in Southeast Asians. So... But in a country like Australia, where I come from, it's more than 1%. It's approaching 2%. In Scandinavian countries, it's high. In Germany, it's a bit lower. So this is the genetics, right? So, you know, but it's hovering around 1% of the population worldwide. Okay. 
So it seems to be genetics plays obviously a role, which we're going to get to in a few minutes. What would also, I'm curious to hear how you would describe the common symptoms, because I've, I've, we've had a few patients in common we'll talk about, but what would you right. say are the presenting symptoms that you're usually looking for in a patient that has celiac disease, true celiac disease? Yes, certainly one of the issues with celiac disease is the presentation can be so diverse. Um, I just saw a lady today whose child presented at 20 months, very sick, with diarrhea and bloating, required admission to a hospital. And the child had blood tests and a biopsy confirming celiac disease. And the family was advised to be screened. And I saw her a 38-year-old mother today, and the mother had fatigue, had had one miscarriage, and had some numbness and tingling, and she had very strongly positive tests for celiac disease. So you can have a whole spectrum of people who are critically ill to presenting with no symptoms being picked up just because they're in a at-risk group that gets screened. And it can occur at any age from after 12 months or after nine months when kids start to eat wheat to the oldest I've seen is someone of aged about 86 at presentation. And the symptoms are diverse. Certainly the gastrointestinal symptoms such as diarrhea or irritable bowel syndrome like trigger the question of could this be celiac disease. The main modes of presentation are diarrhea, anemia, reduced bone density, just having an endoscopy puts you at risk because you can you can find it. And then there are a whole bunch of different causes such as osteoporosis, peripheral neuropathy, infertility. It's just such a wide spectrum. Right. And the fact that there's this wide spectrum contributes to its underdiagnosis because patients aren't going to a celiac doc, they're going to their GP, they're going to their urologist, they're going to their obstetrician. So there's a high rate of underdiagnosis, actually. I have to unpack this. You talked about so many important things in that those few sentences that I, again, I want the listeners to really understand. You know, again, when I was in medical school and then when I obviously finished and went to practice, you know, my thinking, as I'm sure a lot of other doctors back, I'm talking about even the early 1990s was, you know, celiac disease was mainly, again, like the infant you just described, you know, the young child having severe diarrhea, vomiting, not gaining weight. That was the classic celiac disease. Everything else was very extremely rare. And what changed my thinking early in my career, and this is where our paths overlap, I had a patient that I was treating in my practice for allergic asthma. And we were doing desensitization with her, and that was getting better. And then one day she was telling me, you know, she got close, you know, we had a, developed a close relationship, you know, doctor-patient relationship. And she was starting to tell me, I know I'm extremely tired. I don't feel well. So I said, let's draw some blood. And I drew some blood and it turned out she was anemic. Again, one of the things you pointed out. But again, remember, this is 1994, right. 95. And she said, oh, God. and I said, well, Ash, you have to see your internist. I wasn't doing that kind of work back then. And she saw her internist, who turns out it was funny. He was an internist hematologist. You'll really appreciate this. And, you know, a blood specialist. And he sees her and says, oh, you have uh, iron deficiency. Let's just put you on iron. So he puts her on iron for a few months, and she doesn't feel any better. In fact, she's feeling worse. And then the patient, who is very bright, comes to me. She goes, do you think I could have celiac disease? 
And then I thought, whoa, maybe that's possible. Again, but I hadn't really seen an adult case like that. And again, she was very bright. And somehow she got to you. And she saw you. And sure enough, you made the diagnosis through the lab tests and and the endoscopy. And what was fascinating was that after she went on the gluten-free diet, not only did her anemia correct, she also had joint pain, which she had neglected to tell me, and her asthma resolved. It was such a wonderful case to see so early in my career. And the other last interesting thing I want to point out, because this is, again, I said was so fascinating and what you were talking about was so she was getting better and her son turned out also had environmental allergies, but she said, you know what? He's having terrible headaches. And, you know, he's, she was taking him around to neurology. She goes, could he have celiac? I said, I think we should check. And sure enough, on the blood testing, he was positive. And she put him on a, the gluten-free diet and his headaches went away. So, right. right? So that, that, that's probably something that you see all the time, but so dramatic when you see the results, correct? Yes. And the other interesting thing is when individuals are screened, right, so they are just tested because they're in an at-risk group, such as being a family member or having autoimmune disease, such as type 1 diabetics or Sjogren's syndrome or autoimmune liver disease. All these autoimmune diseases, yes. And they get diagnosed. They had no complaints, but then in retrospect, they say, well, you know, actually I used to feel lousy and I feel better now after being diagnosed and going on a gluten-free diet. Well, one of the things, too, you know as a gastroenterologist, I always joke with my patients about this. I said it usually takes patients five or seven years till they come to see me because I do a lot of holistic medicine and we deal a lot with the bowel issues because people just think it's normal to be bloated, to be constipated, to be taking Tums or Pepsids, and it's not. So, you know, the other thing I want to get to, which is probably the trickiest part of this whole gluten rage, is gluten sensitivity, as you've shown in algorithms when you're, you know, trying to separate what kind of patients. And as you know, it's confusing because these patients seem to not feel well when they eat products that contain gluten. But yet, when you do endoscopies on them, they don't show the pathology, you know, with the changes in the intestinal wall, you know, for our listeners, that you do see with, you know, a full-blown celiac, celiac disease. disease. Right. Yes. But the symptoms can be identical, as, as you've mentioned in your lectures and papers, correct? Right. Yeah. So so there's, there's a group of people that get labeled as having non-celiac gluten or wheat sensitivity. Mm-hmm. And the definition of that is people with symptoms that improve on withdrawal of gluten or wheat from the diet and relapse when it's reintroduced. Now, most of the studies that have looked at self-identified gluten-sensitive individuals find that they're actually reacting to other products in the diet, these, these sugars called FODMAPs. And there was a study done in Australia that took gluten-sensitive individuals, put them on a low FODMAP diet that we can talk about in a little bit, and they didn't appear to be gluten-sensitive. So most of the studies show that gluten-sensitive individuals are sensitive to other products in the diet, right. some of which are in wheat, actually. So, And these are the sugars such as fructose and fructans, and they're found in fruits and garlic and onions, broccoli, certain vegetables. So a lot of the gluten sensitivity is probably like not real gluten sensitivity. Well, what would you advise 
to a patient? Because, of course, this is the, always the bottom line for patients. What do I eat? So if they have something like this, do you tell them they can have gluten? Or actually they can't because it has the fructose oligosaccharides well, in it. Most, know, most people, so certainly if someone's got symptoms, they should be tested for celiac disease because if they go on a gluten-free diet, you lose the opportunity to diagnose celiac disease. So symptoms should prompt testing for celiac disease. And if it's positive, they go along the pathway to get a diagnosis. If they're negative, it's not unreasonable to try a gluten-free diet, um, but that should be under the care of a dietitian. But it's more sensible, to my mind, to be under the care of the dietitian and to try a low FODMAP diet. So you'd restrict the fructose containing fruits and the vegetables with fructans in them. A recent study that was done in Norway gave these gluten-sensitive individuals gluten and fructans and changed them over, changed the groups, changed the diet, and they were mainly sensitive to the fructans, which are the mm. sugars in those vegetables and fruits. So, yeah, I think well, know, that's a great very, point. Very hard, like it's. You know, it's interesting because people come in and say, I'm sensitive to soy or I'm sensitive to corn. And, you know, usually when they have a food, it's all mixed up. You know, you have a bit of this, a bit of that. And it's kind of strange to me the way people will identify a certain food product as being being the problem. You know, well, many people that we see actually restrict their diet much too much and you know, they are avoiding gluten, they're avoiding soy, they're avoiding corn, they're avoiding dairy. And this can lead to, it's actually almost a variant of anorexia nervosa, orthorexia, in which people identify food products as being toxic to them. Well, I think people are confused. Again, sometimes a story brings out an interesting point. You know, I, I see sometimes also a lot of patients that have what's called yeast sensitivity. And again, I had a patient once, she was a religious woman, Jewish religious woman. And she came to me, she goes, I don't seem to tolerate wheat, you know, what she believed. And I did testing for wheat allergy. It was negative. She goes, I just seem to feel better when I'm not on wheat. So this, and we tested her for celiac. She did not have celiac. So yeah. she would, again, would fall into your, you know, gluten sensitive group or possibly the FODMU. Right. But this is what was interesting. She said to me, she goes, you know, what's strange though is the one time I don't seem to have a problem is Passover, you know, the Jewish holiday when, you know, they're eating matzah, which is unleavened wheat. And she goes, I'm fine. So again, it's like what you're bringing out that there could be sometimes different ingredients in the wheat. And, and so much of wheat, as you know, too, there's always, it seems like sugar is the second ingredient in every packaged food. And another thing I'd like you to address right now, too, you know, a lot of patients or people that go on, uh, quote, gluten-free or look for gluten-free foods that are packaged, what do you think about them as far as health-wise? Do you think it's a good choice for them? Do you, you know, a lot of them are made with potato starches and a lot of other additives. Yeah, for sure. You know, the things that make food tasty are salt, sugar, gluten, fat. And if you take something out of this, so often if you have a low-fat product, it has more salt in it or more sugar or more gluten. And so a lot of the manufactured foods, if you take the gluten out, they add more fat or they add more salt. So it's not uncommon for people who are going on a gluten-free diet and 
purchase these gluten-free manufactured products that they can gain weight or their cholesterol go up. You know, there are these great gluten-free foods called fruit and vegetables and meat and dairy, you know, which you can have a very healthy, diverse diet. You know, another factor, like if someone's going on a gluten-free diet, they often eat just a few foods that they regard as safe and their diet is not very diverse or healthy. So we always encourage people who are on a gluten-free diet to seek the help of a registered dietitian so their gluten-free diet can be a healthy diet, a diverse diet. And it's important that people eat the the non-gluten-containing grains such as like buckwheat uh, millet or and quinoa. quinoa right. you know, rice doesn't have a lot of fiber. You know, a gluten-free diet is not a very healthy diet in that it's low in fiber. Gluten-free grain flours are not fortified, so they're low in B vitamins. People often eat a lot of rice, and if right. you eat a lot of rice, you're at risk to get elevated levels of heavy metals because arsenic and mercury gets point. absorbed into rice much more than into wheat or quinoa. You're right. You know, what I try to advise my patients, too, is obviously getting a lot of you know, vegetables, because obviously, you know, the vegetables contain water and, and help with just the flow through the digestive tract, because you're right, if, you know, if you don't get that very different types of things in your diet, you know, it's going to definitely you'll get constipated and you will have other issues. Let's move on to, I think it's important. So again, if, if a patient goes to their doctor and says, I don't seem to tolerate weed or gluten, I, I want to know if I have celiac disease or not too, what would be the blood test that you would initially have them ask for or to have their doctor order? Yeah. So celiac disease is this unique autoimmune condition and has very high positivity for these autoantibodies, such as antibodies to tissue transglutaminase. Very sensitive and very specific for the test when it's at high titers. So, you know, the best test is this tissue transglutaminase IgA antibody, we would also add these gliadin antibodies because they add about ten, about a five to eight percent chance of getting the diagnosis. So the antibodies, if they're positive, should then lead to an endoscopy because we're actually aware of some people that can have positive antibodies but a negative biopsy, and they wouldn't get diagnosed with celiac disease. They'd be called like potential celiac disease and. We've seen people with positive antibodies that have a normal biopsy and the antibodies can go down to normal while the people are still ingesting gluten. So, you know, the diagnosis in most people is not subtle. You know, they have symptoms, they have the antibody tests, they get referred for endoscopy and they go on a gluten-free diet. So So that's the normal steps of getting diagnosed. There, there's an algorithm now that's a kind of accepted in Europe for diagnosing children without the biopsy. That's but there are actually asking. strict criteria that that antibody level has to be greater than 10 times normal. There has to be symptoms. And then there has to be a follow-up blood test that's also abnormal because that initial blood test, it might be mixed up from the wrong patient or they might have this temporary gluten autoimmunity and the antibodies go down so and they've got to have the right gene. So Well, that sounds like nicer too, 
Yeah, because when you're dealing with young children, to have to have them get it, like, you know, you mentioned that case you saw earlier today, when you have an infant that's 20 months old, to have to do an endoscopy, if you can diagnose it confidently through blood testing and monitoring, yeah, that sounds because reasonable to you. Because there, there now there isn't anything else really that will cause those symptoms and a very strongly positive antibody. You know, there, there used to be like three endoscopy and biopsies for children uh, in the 60s and the 70s because those blood tests were not available and like a viral gastroenteritis can cause a similar biopsy. So now the diagnosis is much more refined and the more knowledge we get and the more experience, the way we diagnose people changes somewhat. Okay. Well... We have to move to something that's really another hot topic in this whole area. And as you were alluding to about autoimmunity and celiac, and what I really want to get to, to find out a lot of your knowledge, is this whole thing with gluten, leaky gut, and autoimmunity. And I know in your lecture you mentioned a few things, but we're going to go in a little more depth there because now I get to have you one-on-one. <laughs> and what I want to just explain for the listeners is that, which I think is so important, that one of the things that we have really learned in the last two decades before I really started practice is that the small intestine now is really understood as an immune organ, where I, I think, you know, 20, 30 years ago, it was just thought it was tubing through which you digested your food. And, you know, again, back in the day when I did my immunology training, you know, we always thought the bone marrow and certain immune organs like the spleen or the thymus was where your immunity stemmed from. But now we know it's this interaction with the environment you know, with your, especially your upper digestive tract. So I want to get into the topic of this gut permeability, which I know you talked about in your lecture to the doctors. And this whole idea about with the tight junctions, you know, the things that hold the cells together. And also, you know, about the, the component zonulin, which one of your colleagues uh, up at Harvard now, Dr. Fasano, uh, has written a lot about. So I guess I want to ask you, do you feel... Celiac patients have higher levels of zonulin in their blood than average? I don't know very much about zonulin, actually. It's um, a little bit of a controversial entity. Like What I am very much aware of is that the gut is a very permeable organ. Like any of us, if we're eating wheat, we will absorb and excrete whole in our urine these gluten peptides that become toxic for people with celiac disease. So our gut is very porous and all the time the immune system is sampling the products in our intestine. This intestinal permeability is a normal phenomenon, like the gut is normally a leaky organ and it becomes more leaky if you exercise strenuously, if you take an aspirin or a non-steroidal, if you have alcohol, the permeability increases. So it's fluctuating all the time. And see, the, why we have celiac disease is this gluten molecule appears to be passing through the gut, you know, all the time whenever we eat gluten. And the enzyme tissue transglutaminase has to be activated. And say that can happen after an episode of gastroenteritis. And that will change the shape and the charge of those little gluten molecules that are passing through the gut and result in allowing this gluten molecule to interact with the immune system. Like kids that get rotavirus infection 
or the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq that got Campylobacter, which is a bacterial gastroenteritis, had an increased risk of finishing up with celiac disease. And it's just a like a coming together of bad things for these people that they're eating wheat, as like 98% of us do, and they get gastroenteritis and they get an immune system that the body doesn't dampen down and they can finish up with celiac disease. So like I'm a, you know, this phenomenon of a leaky gut has been, is a normal physiological phenomenon that's been given the name of a disease that mainly these functional doctors use. You know, your problem is a leaky gut. Like we all have a leaky gut. So, you know, to me, it's like a, a misuse of uh, physiological terminology. For some people, gluten will increase that leakiness, but not to a pathological level. Well, why do you think then also these patients with celiac disease that are that are undiagnosed, that are eating gluten products, that they get all what we'll call these extra gastrointestinal symptoms? There's also been a yeah. lot written now, as you're probably familiar with, the brain. And I mean, there's you know, papers that have come out about affecting people's concentration, the full spectrum, I mean, even, you know, you know, true psychiatric disorders. Are you attributing that to just an autoimmune reaction? Do you think it's those gluten peptides getting into the brain? I mean, because there have been... I think it's a, you know, it's a bit unclear. Like there was another study done in Australia that they took people who were, had active celiac disease at diagnosis and they did subtle cognitive testing and they were impaired. They were impaired to the level of someone who has like severe jet lag or driving under the influence of alcohol. And at a year, that had resolved. So there's definitely a an effect on the brain. And whether that's due to the gluten molecules or due to cytokines that get released, you know, there's more work that's been done recently, like something that a phenomenon that we become aware of is that individuals who get diagnosed with celiac disease, they often didn't have very much in the way of symptoms. And then after a year or more on the diet, if they get a little bit of gluten, they get very sick. They, they get brain fog, they get headache and they throw up. And it's been clear now the mechanism of that, that these individuals, when they get a bit of gluten, will release certain cytokines that have an effect on the brain and, and result in symptoms. And that bit of knowledge is going to be used as a test to determine uh, if someone who's on a gluten-free diet has celiac disease, you know, by giving a bit of gluten and seeing if the cytokines go up. So, you know, there's a lot of just very recent knowledge that has been used to explain some of the symptoms that we we see individuals exhibiting. You know, an interesting phenomenon is this dermatitis epitiformis, which is the itchy, very blistering rash. Right, it looks like herpes. Um, That's why, they, yeah, it looks like yeah. herpes, but it's not. And yeah. it usually appears and like, the It drives people nuts because these little blisters yeah. are just so itchy that people will scratch them in their sleep. And, like, what that is is like an autoimmune phenomenon. It's these tissue transglutaminase antibodies interact with tissue transglutaminase 6 in the skin. And 
cause this acute immune reaction. So like there are different mechanisms for different manifestations. Like we did a study, there's a high rate of thyroid autoimmunity. I was going to ask you about that, right. In celiac disease, like hypo and hyperthyroidism. The association is so great that anyone who's got an autoimmune thyroid disorder should be screened for celiac disease. But we did a study showing that these tissue transglutaminase antibodies actually bind with the thyroid because and potentially can alter structure and function and put you at increased risk to get autoimmunity. So symptoms might be related to cytokines. They may be related to other molecules that are released during inflammation, or they could be related to the antibodies. <laughs> I can keep talking about this. I saw a patient today who had gluten ataxia. Right. Gluten ataxia means when somebody's unbalanced, like they can't walk without falling down, essentially. Yeah. Okay. He had very bad balance issue and a little bit of cerebellar atrophy, and he had positive gliadin antibodies. And they've demonstrated that these gliadin antibodies are deposited in the blood vessels of the brain. So the different manifestations may have different mechanisms, but they like just add to the like the wonder of all this gluten stuff and how how we're actually just learning now a lot about it. You know, it's interesting that the domestication of grains has been responsible for us to, you know, live in villages. Right, not uh, have to forage out in the wilderness. Store food, et cetera. <laughs> and, you know, maybe it's become clear that despite a civilization thriving, there are some people who who um, Still don't tolerate yeah, no, strange. no, 100%. The, uh, two things I want to review, though, I think are really important, though. So basically what you're saying is anybody with an autoimmune thyroiditis, you know, with thyroid inflammation, which can be shown easily when you see your general doctor, if they measure, if they see your thyroid levels are off, for example, something called your TSH is high, and you have something called thyroid peroxidase antibodies, you know, doctors can screen this. They don't always do that, but if they screen that and they find that, you're saying that they should be evaluated for potential celiac yeah. disease. I think that's very important yeah. for listeners to to do because thyroid also is rampant for various reasons in the population. The other thing I'd that's like right. to go back to to see if I could connect the dots with this is that you said that exercise along with aspirin or whatever can be something that increases gut permeability. Now, I know also I got very interested in, in gluten's issues for athletes because so many athletes have gone on a gluten-free diet hoping it would prolong their career and do you see any validity to that, you know, where, or, or if someone's an athlete, you know, that they should stay on yeah. a gluten-free diet? So this is very common and like, you know, it just happens that a lot of this stuff came out of Australia. Like there was a survey of world-class athletes, including Olympic standard athletes, and 50 to 80% were on a gluten-free diet more than 50% of the time. And it was suggested that they do because there was a suggestion that it would increase energy output. Well, they went on and did a study in which they took competition cyclists and they they studied them on a gluten-containing diet and on a gluten-free diet and there was no difference in performance or energy output. So 
you know, that guy, I think they're, I think the they're looking for inflammation, guy. but they're looking for inflammation, I think. I think people are worried about it. I, I mean, I, it's a good point about, you know, does it optimize their performance? But I think so many of them are concerned that, again, gluten being inflaming, that they have recovery time. Has anybody looked at that that you know of? No. Okay. Well, this is this concept that of like an anti-inflammatory diet. And see, once again, I think this has just not been very well studied. And, and it's almost pseudoscience that people take bits of scientific information and like cherry pick it and then put it together and say, this is what people should be doing. Because like this craze about a gluten-free diet, you know, of all the different diets, you know, low carb, veganism, organic food, South Beach diet, the, the one diet that has true medical legitimacy is a gluten-free diet because that will save the lives of people with celiac disease. You know, in celiac disease, there's increased mortality and increased morbidity, and that goes back to the normal population on a gluten-free diet. So of all the different diets, and you can name like eight diets, now right. the, one of the trendiest diets is a paleo diet. Paleo and keto, you know, yeah. Yeah, that, but the gluten-free diet has got more medical, medical legitimacy, and you know, I, I just don't think that you know, these diets... Well, that can be classified uh, as anti-inflammatory, whether there's very good, true scientific evidence that there's well, any look, beneficial. There's, yeah, there's no question that you've done the work for the celiac. The only thing I point I'll bring out, because I, I think that's what these things are touching on, and I'm not sure how you know, how much you develop, delved into this in your research, but, you know, wheat, again, or maybe you, do, you can fill us in on this, it has a high glycemic index. And, you know, that makes the sugar go up. And that's, again, that whole thing where people are concerned about inflammation. We, we tend, there's a lot of supporting data now, I believe, that's showing that, obviously, high sugar levels, which makes sense, you know, inflames the body. It will make the cortisol level go up in the body. And I think that's the thinking, you know, behind this. I don't know, again, if well, you... we actually did a study, like, with the people who run the the nurses study and the physician study in Boston in which they've right. got like about 100,000 people that they've been following and they have good diet history. And because there's this suggestion that gluten might increase heart disease, we developed this gluten index in which people on the diet, you can assess whether they're eating a lot of gluten or a little bit of gluten. And the people who are eating the less gluten had an increased risk of heart disease. And it was thought that it was possibly due to the fact that when people restrict gluten, they restrict whole grains that are very healthy for you. So like what, what was shown was that there was increased risk of heart disease in people who were eating the less amount of gluten and there was increased risk of type 2 diabetes in individuals that were on the lowest spectrum the lowest quartile of gluten ingestion. So a gluten-free diet is not a healthy diet. It increases your risk of heart disease. It increases your risk of type 2 diabetes. So, you know, I think people have to have the scientific evidence and not just talk pseudoscience like those books, Grain, Brain and Wheat Belly. They're pseudoscience, unfortunately. They're bestsellers and they've convinced a lot of people to go on a gluten-free diet and there's just 
no valid scientific evidence. You know, I think hopefully my listeners really appreciate, you know, when we said we started this about is gluten the number one enemy? I feel like I'm talking to a gluten advocate. <laughs> well, you know, I am. Well, yeah. like, like, I see people. You must really love pizza or something. <laughs> like, I see people, they say, look, I restrict gluten. Right. Uh, I don't eat soy, corn, and dairy. And I say, like, why do you do that? You know? Well, <laughs> well I feel better when I do right. that. Well, you can't argue you know, with success. Those individuals <laughs> might feel better if they restrict broccoli. <laughs> you know, well, George Bush did. Take, you know, it's like I think that you know individuals often don't do this very lightly. So you know, as a medical professional, we got to respect what they say, but we got to try to also add some scientific validity to what what becomes like popular folklore. Well, there's no question you are the expert in, in this area, and I respect so much what you say. I may have some different opinions about these things, but that's why I have you on here. I want to. Yeah, I've I wanna... only got opinions too. Like, right. And many right. people. Well, you're very you humble know, too. That's what I loved about is... you. You know, as, as, as well known as respected as you are, you definitely. It's have only a... an opinion. <laughs> uh, let me ask you this also. And it's interesting. This is another area where diagnostics overlap in our respective fields. You know, I had a patient, again, an interesting case, a woman I took care of, again, for asthma, who had terrible gastrointestinal symptoms for a few years. And, I, you know, I didn't, I really, I wasn't really following her for that, but it kept on coming up. And then eventually we tested her, and she was positive for the two antibody tests, which you had mentioned earlier. She had the endoscopy, she was positive. And also I ended up doing the genetic testing, which you had taught me about, too. It just, you know, we were trying to, like, pull everything together. And this was the interesting part of the story. She fortunately got so much better digestive-wise. Her asthma also improved dramatically. And then one day she comes into my office. We were talking about something. And she pulls out this little device, this little triangular device called a NEMA, spelled N-I-M-A, which she explained to me. She goes, this is if she goes to a restaurant because she was so exquisitely sensitive to gluten, that if you know she went out with friends or whatever and she ate some food that had gluten in, she again would be throwing up and really sick. And she would just take a little piece of this and put it in the device. And it was really kind of cute, actually. The device would have like a little smile if the food didn't have Smiley gluten. Face. And yep. it, had, it had the angry face if it did. So, and, and they also have this for peanut allergy, by the way. I like the listeners to know that. I mean, I think it's fascinating when you're, because you got to remember so many of these people are afraid when they're eating out socially. So I was just curious, do you recommend that for some of your patients who are extremely sensitive? Well, we just had a publication coming out because, you know, we didn't know what to do with this, right, whether to recommend it or not. And in our publication, it reports a study in which we gave these little instruments, these gluten detectors, to individuals and like studied their quality of life and their anxiety, depression, and what they thought about it. And actually patients, uh, the majority of individuals benefited from it. They, it improved their quality of life. So, you know, there is a bit of a problem with it. It can take like three minutes, maybe difficult to work at times. And some people don't like it. It's embarrassing to use it. Etc. And it may be very sensitive because it can pick up gluten in the gluten-free range, less than 20 parts per million. But overall, we felt that our study showed that people could benefit from it. 
and that it improved their feeling of well-being. I think it makes sense. I mean, obviously, having in the just, peanut having that control, right? I mean, like obviously, with kids or adults that have peanut allergy, it could be life-saving, and in the celiac patients, it could be you know gut-saving. You know, interestingly, yeah, I'm, I'm not familiar with the results of the studies of their peanut allergy as yet. Mm. Oh, with the peanut with the nema? Mm. Yeah. You know, what's interesting, too, with peanut allergy, obviously a patient, unfortunately, ingests peanut, you know, it's epinephrine. You know, they have it on them. Yeah. They have to go to a hospital. Is there any antidote for somebody that ingests gluten and it has an immediate violent reaction? Is there any? I just was curious. Is there anything that you recommend, you know, bicarbonate well, or? there really isn't anything that you can do, like for kind of mild symptoms, you know, we suggest Pepto-Bismol. For people who have like moderately severe symptoms that can be persistent for a period of time, you know, we may get them to use the locally acting steroid budesonide to dampen down their inflammatory response. How would they do? You mean to swallow it or to? Yeah, like there's a that's a cortisone for the listeners. Enteric coated form, uh-huh. and it's actually used to treatment for Crohn's disease and. What we do is we give it to people with severe symptoms of celiac disease. We get them to open the capsules so that it works not down in the ileum and the colon, but high up in the duodenum. So if someone has a severe reaction from, you know, they go out and eat and they're given a bowl of pasta that's, they're told it's gluten-free and then they've eaten it and they get sick and they say, I'm sorry, we gave you the wrong pasta. Those individuals might benefit from taking budesonide for a couple of days. That's a great idea. I never even thought of that. That's a really good idea. All right, my big final question for you, Dr. Green, you've always been at the forefront of this. You were diagnosing patients, as I said, early on, way before anybody was really paying attention to this. Well, you're very flattering. Well, you know, I had to even get you on the podcast. (laughs) But what do you see as hopefully the biggest future advance in celiac disease? Will we have have a medication that a patient can take that they won't have to worry about eating gluten or yeah there are actually 40 different drug targets that are being evaluated you know with celiac disease it's probably we know more about the mechanism of people getting celiac disease than any other autoimmune condition so there are all these different steps and the drugs that have been the most studied and advanced in the process of getting through into clinical use are like enzymes to digest the gluten that we can't digest properly. That's interesting. Um, a drug to increase, to decrease the intestinal tight junctions to prevent gluten getting in. And then more recently, a vaccine, which is not a real vaccine. It's more like immunotherapy as for people with allergies. So they're the, they're the three most advanced modes of therapy um, but the the people that have the biological agents that we use inflammatory bowel disease are interested in looking at celiac disease. And I would envisage there being a whole spectrum of different kinds of medications that people could take. You could, you know, people may be able to eat enzymes and eat a little bit of gluten eventually. Currently, all the therapies are just to help people with a gluten-free diet. But I would imagine they may be replaced. There's this nanoparticle therapy that maybe people can get an infusion once a year, every couple of years, and be able to eat gluten. So I think that the advances have been very spectacular. And 
is very great hope for for those because it's kind of unfair that people can have inflammatory bowel disease, they can have cancer, and they can get treated and they can be cured. For someone with celiac disease, they're never cured. They always have to be cognitive of what they eat. Right. You know, they can't just walk along the street and grab something. And they have to question people, right. etc. That's a great so, point. I think that that's kind of unfair for them, and so I'm a very great protagonist of the development of a therapy to help individuals if they want it. Some people on a gluten-free diet are perfectly happy. They manage it, but the majority of people actually want something to help them with it. It's kind of funny, really, because people with inflammatory bowel disease that has all these medications, they're looking for a diet. And people with celiac disease that have the diet, they're looking for a medication. Right. That's, so, that's always like the know, grass is always greener. You know, I have to ask one follow-up question to this because it just got me thinking. You know, one of the hugest changes in thinking in, in, on the allergy field was about peanut, that if someone, you know, comes from a family that there's a lot of peanut allergy, that introduction of peanut, believe it or not, in that first six months of life right. is like a window where it seems that they can essentially become tolerant to the peanut. Has anybody looked at, let's say, if a mother knows that she has celiac disease, because it would seem so contra, you know, to what you should do, anything where if they introduce wheat early on, that there's any tolerance to that? Like, for a while, we were encouraging people to give their little children a little bit of gluten between four to seven months in that window period. But there was a very large European study of children at risk and they they studied that they there were two different studies one study gave a little bit of gluten between four and seven months and the other study delayed gluten for 12 months and in both of them it didn't alter the the risk of someone getting celiac disease and and the children of these parents or siblings who have celiac disease the risk of them getting celiac disease was entirely based on the dose of the gene. And breastfeeding didn't have an effect. It didn't prevent it. Uh, Giving a little bit of gluten in that window didn't prevent it. And delaying the gluten for 12 months didn't prevent it. So we now just tell people to do what the pediatrician suggests. Give gluten at seven months and watch. And don't give too much in the second and third year. So, but like there's been a lot of the celiac people have been following the allergy people very closely, actually. Well, Dr. Green, I just want to thank you again for coming on the podcast. As usual, you are a super gentleman and the knowledge that you can impart to people who are uh, suffering with celiac disease and for people who are worried about it, I hope this podcast gives them a lot of things to think about. If any of my listeners have any questions or comments about today's podcast, please go to my Twitter handle at DeanMitchellMD. And I'll try to answer as many comments or questions as I can. Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook at Mitchell Medical Group, or at DeanMitchellMD.com.